Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Boss, I got it. Beat it, Wolf. I'm busy. No, you're going to want to hear this one, boss. This is the superhero that's going to take Dankowski Quality Comics to the next level, okay? Wolf, your ideas stink. You got no feel for business. I mean, some of your characters literally stink. What was the one who went to the bathroom on people? Oh, the Tinkler? Exposure to gamma rays gave him supersonic urological powers. Come on. Terrible. Well, you never gave him a chance. A chance? He's still in the Justice League of -of out-of-network specialists. Oh, Captain Kidney Stone hogs the spotlight, and you know it. Please, just hear me out. Okay, Wolf, let's hear your latest. Okay, you ready? The Red Rabbit. The Red Rabbit. His parents were explorers. When their plane crashed in the mountains, an undocumented race of Himalayan rabbits raised the baby Fleming Blake. He returns to society with great leaping powers and the ability to stun his enemies with a massive thrust of his hind legs. Why would he have these powers? Just because rabbits raised him? Well, he drank their breast milk. Disgusting. Get out, wolf. Out. Ugh, fine. I'm sorry I even said anything. Marty, is anyone else doing a rabbit superhero right now? No. Okay, I want you to copyright some names. Today on the show, we take you behind the scenes of the comic book world. And now, by day, a mild-mannered radio host. By night, get off my lawn, man. Colin McEnroe. All right, and that's the way it was, too. You know, you'd come up with a great idea, and the boss would steal it. Uh, We're going to tell you a little bit about the history, a lot about the history of comic books, also about the present and future of comic books. Today, uh, as we go along here, you're going to meet Mort Todd. He's a former editor of both Cracked Magazine and at Marvel Comics, uh, and the publisher of something very new and exciting called the Charlton Arrow, uh, Paul Kupperberg. As a freelance writer and editor, former D- editor at DC Comics, currently working for Archie Comics, where there's a lot of excitement going on, too. Uh, you'll hear Frank McLaughlin. I talked to him earlier this week. He's one of the surviving artists from the era of Charlton Comics, which is an amazing, amazing story. Uh, we'll come to that, though. Uh, so we're going to talk a lot today in particular about this very unusual uh, company that uh, that existed down in Derby, Connecticut. And... Um, but before we do that, I just want to sort of talk about what we're talking about. Uh, and it doesn't make any sense. Uh, here in the studio with us is our Helder Mira. He's a filmmaker for Rabbit Ears Media. And Angie Shearstone, she's an independent comic book creator of Blood Dreams. I have uh, an issue of Blood Dreams right here. Uh, it's, there are people in Blood Dreams who are doing things uh, that uh, no one ever did in Batman comics when I was growing up. Although we always had some questions about Batman and Robin. Um, and so and as we go along here, we'd love to hear from you. 860-275-7266. 860-275-7266. You know, Helder, uh, you may have had a similar experience to me growing up. Growing up, when I was starting around the time I was in third or fourth grade, I got really interested in comic books. And the one thing that I was explicitly told by everybody in my life that was that I wasn't reading, uh, that that was not reading. Comic books were not reading. This was not. Um, in fact, you know, actually, we sent uh, one of our interns, I think Anna Novak, out on the streets to ask a question about this. So before I even have you talk about it. Let's hear what people on the streets said about comic books versus literature. Do you think comic books should be viewed as literature or a form of entertainment? Oh, definitely literature. There's a lot of comics that have some really like adult, like profound themes in them that I think, yeah, definitely literature. 
Yeah, I actually I think um, if graphic novels count as comics, um, I would definitely count them as literature. It can be intricate and could be really simple and basic, just like books can be. It's not what I would consider high literature. It's not, you know, it's, it's just like a mere form of entertainment, and there's nothing really wrong with that, you know. And uh, I will I will say I like some comics, like maybe Watchmen. All right, so that's what people say now because the, the, the game has shifted quite a bit. But, Helder, I don't know. Growing up, first of all, how old were you when you started uh, to be a comic book guy? I must have been about six or or so. I, my introduction was actually the Batman Campy mm-hmm. series, which was running on uh, <clears throat> on reruns at the time, and that got me into, like, well, when I'd see Batman on the newsstand or whatever or Superman, I'd want the, those books and would end up reading them, usually spend hours reading those versus anything else. Um, so I can see where people would say like that was depriving or depraving my mind or whatnot and damaging that. But I was it got me to read. It got me interested in reading. My parents would read to me from uh, from Portuguese books that we or comics that we were getting from Portugal, and I would then start reading those on my own at a time when I was just learning how to read both both languages, which so was confusing enough. Portuguese comic books as a, and and American comic yes, books. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. What were Portuguese comic books like? Uh, usually they would be we would go in, uh, to Portugal and they would have like reprints of uh, of Standard DC comics. Bacalhau Man. (laughs) Yeah, Codfish Man was was my favorite. Uh, Or there was a bunch of different, like, um, European artists. There there was uh, Asterix as well that we would get in Portuguese or the Smurf season in Portuguese. And it was this one, like, uh, animal world. I can't recall what it was called. But uh, those were in Portuguese. And some of my, where I learned about the Aurora Borealis was through this one book or the the pyramids because I was reading it in Portuguese. So. And and I felt as though I mean I was very defensive about this because there were uh, my parents were apparently not even as supportive as you were about this. Although I had a nice allowance, I was an only child, you know, so I could buy a lot of comic books. And I felt like I was learning things too. I mean, first of oh, all, yeah. I learned vocab. I mean, at one point, very ill-advisedly, the world of comic books introduced a character named the Elongated Man, <laughs> who was just like another version of Plastic Man or Mister Fantastic. I was always the same. But first of all, a terrible He's name a for a superhero. Yeah, you had to know what. You, yeah, you had to know what the word elongated or elongated meant. And, uh, I mean, and no child to do that, you know, but I knew right. it. I knew tons about Norse mythology, like a lot about Norse mythology. Well, I started learning about science through, like, The Flash and, yeah. and Mr. Fantastic and all that. I mean, I will say that while my parents were supportive of me reading, they did also start saying, well, isn't this, like, kid stuff? Do you really need to be reading this? Do you need to spend your allowance on it? And uh, same before, one of my first books that I bought with my allowance was a uh, Paul Kupperberg's Superpowers comics that he did with Jack Kirby, which is where I started learning about Jack Kirby's artwork. And uh, at the time, like as a kid, you don't really know who who the different writers or artists are, and you just go for the characters. I'm we're, sure you were the same. Yeah, we're gonna and we're gonna. Although that that changed for me at a certain point. I do remember it. I, we may not have time to get into that. I don't know. We have so much to cover here. We're gonna introduce you to some of those um, historic comic book guys like Paul Kupperberg in just a second. But Angie Shearstone, one of the things that Hilda and I knew growing up was that uh, girls don't really read comic books that much. And in fact, if you read comic books and you're a guy, it also means that probably. Most of the sexual experiences you're going to have in your life are going to take place on a, like a five-year delay compared to everybody else's. <laughs> so, um, so what's a nice girl like you doing in the comic book? Right, I'm right. Um, well, my my first, I think, love of comics, I would say, would be the ElfQuest series uh, that um, my brother bought a bunch of for me when I was maybe 14 or 15. 
And and these, uh, you know, unlike a lot of the Batman and Superman things, these were, you know, probably PG-13. Um, you know, it was a fantasy world. There were elves, and they did some things that you wouldn't necessarily see Batman do. But for the most part, it was, you know, okay for a teenager. And and I, I loved those, and those were great stories. Um, I'd had a little bit of exposure to maybe Archie comics before that or some Bugs Bunny stuff, but never really got hooked. Um, so loved those. And, and it, later on in college is probably when I really fell in love with, with the, the concept of, of making comics and, and, and the format. And that was sort of as you went through the mid to late 80s and early 90s, uh, some things happened, you know, like in the printing world where they were able to print on higher quality paper that could take a higher ink coverage. And so you started to see um, – painted comics, fully painted comics. And as you can see, that that is what I do. I'm, I'm, you know, I use watercolor. I'm an experimental watercolorist. And it was in that area that you started to see people doing that. And that was one of the things that drew me into that. And it gave rise to, I mean, there were other reasons why, um, you know, Sandman, also like just sort of darker, creepier, less superhero-oriented uh, stories being told, and those were really attractive to me. You know, the the more horror or urban fantasy, if that you know, although that term wasn't applicable at the time, that sort of stuff is is was really engaging for me. Well, and we can ask the questions of these guys all day long. I think uh, Paul Kupperberg's joining us right now. As I say, he was a former editor at DC Comic Books, currently working for Archie Comic Books. Um, Paul Kupperberg, we have a million questions for you, probably about what it's been like to to work in the comic business. For first of all, how, how many years have you been in the comics business? Uh, well, it's getting on uh, forty years now. Wow! And and what what have you thought you were doing? I mean, you know, we asked uh, that question at the beginning. Is it is it literature? Is it just pure pulp entertainment? What is it to you? Well, to me, growing up, it was it was entertainment. Uh, it, it also became a way of life. I was a hardcore fan. Um, I my, my friends were fans. Uh, we got together. We produced fan magazines. Uh, one of one of my friends was uh, someone named Paul Levitz, who went on to become uh, president and publisher of DC Comics. Uh, and together, we published fanzines when we were in high school. Um, to me, I, I'm I'm trying to entertain. Um, I'm trying to tell a story, and I'm trying to tell, hopefully, a story that'll have something to it beyond just you know zap pow bam. <laughs> oh, there's, there's nothing wrong with zap pow bam. Well, uh, there there kind of is. Um, be, uh, after the Batman TV show, of the 1960s, oh, yeah. that kind of became the the shorthand for uh, uh, silly comic books. You know, uh, every time you saw a headline about comics, it was pow zap bam. Batman, Superman, whatever the character is. Uh, so people kind of treated, you know, that as shorthand for um, this is silly kid stuff. But, you know, as people like myself grew up and got into the business and, and got older and were looking for more sophisticated material, we started creating it uh, for ourselves and, and for the fans. And, uh, you know, from the 1980s on, comics really started to grow up. 
You know, we're going to talk a lot uh, later as, as the conversation progresses uh, about that time in the 1980s when comics started to grow up and, and also about the growth that has gone on since then, some of the things that Angie was just uh, alluding to. But let's take a moment, and uh, we do want to spend a little bit of time uh, talking about uh, Charlton Comics. This is sort of an amazing story, and we've got a lot of people who want to help tell it, including Paul. Who is also joining us right now is Mort Todd, a former editor at both Crack Magazine and at Marvel Comics. Uh, he's the publisher and co editor of the Charlton Arrow, which we'll tell you all about right now. Um, but uh, but one of you, more Todd, maybe you can sort of set the scene for us. Explain what Charlton Comics was. Sure. First, I want to make it clear to your audience that I'm not your son, Mortimer. Okay. Right? And <laughs> there's no nepotism here. But uh, Charlton was a pretty unique company in that uh, they had an in-house production where they had the editorial and the printing and the distribution in one building in Derby. Connecticut. And so, uh, you know, they just, they wanted to keep their presses going. And as opposed to Marvel and DC, they had a lot more varied genres of comics. They weren't strictly superhero, which Marvel and DC turned into in the 60s, pretty much. Um, so, yeah, the whole idea was to uh, keep the presses rolling. Now, Paul, did, did you put in any time at, uh, at Charlton? I actually got my start uh, writing, freelance writing with Charlton Comics in 1975. They bought my first uh, half a dozen stories or so. Now, one of the things to talk about, and we're going to actually, I think what we'll do right now is uh, I talked to Frank McLaughlin uh, earlier this week. Uh, he's quite a character. We're going to play a little, little bit of that uh, interview for you right now so that Mort and Paul can react to this a little bit. Frank McLaughlin was one of the artists from that era of Charlton Comics. He currently, currently teaches art at Payer School of Art in Hamden. Uh, first of all, great to talk to you, Frank. Same here. Uh, I'm uh, surprised at all the late interest in Charlton Comics. Uh, that was uh, 1960s we're talking about, and there's still people out there that are big fans of Charlton, and uh, I'm kind of surprised. Set the scene for me, Frank. What did you see when you came into work on, on any given day at Charlton? Charlton was more or less a, a cottage industry, I would say, at that time. And they would do anything there to save money and in order to compete. And some of the stuff was kind of off the wall. Uh, for example, uh, Pat Masuli was the boss of the comics department there, and he was under orders, I assume, to cut costs wherever he could, beginning with the rates, uh, which were very low at the time. Uh, he decided to make the plates out of magnesium instead of the regular metal because they were much lighter, cheaper to ship, that kind of thing. But there was a problem. Uh, the thin lines that the artist inked uh, on the plates would curl. <laughs> so, that, so straight lines were crooked, wavy, and it was <laughs> awful. So the, the anchors, myself and, and others, had to adjust the thickness of the line. So it wasn't too thick, but it wasn't thin, So the, the wine, and it, it looked terrible. <laughs> Pat also designed, to save money for paying letterers, a typewriter with a font similar to hand letters. <laughs> and it was awful because of the kerning, you know, the spaces between the letters, there was no control to, to make the spaces, you know, it, it, it just didn't look right. Despite all that, comics sold. We, mm -hmm. we could compete at the time and did whatever had to be done to, to keep the cost down. Frank, what were some of the titles that you worked on? Well, I started out as a, 
an editor there, mm-hmm. and um, I uh, came up with a character called Judo Master, which sold very well, and that was the part of the action heroes line. We couldn't use the term superheroes. Hmm. I didn't realize at the time, but I've been told that DC and Marvel have an exclusive copyright wow. to the term. How, how could it be exclusive if there's two of them? Exactly. <laughs> You asked me a question, what was it like going in there every day? Mm-hmm. God, we had, it, it, you didn't know what was going to happen. <laughs> we, had, we had one guy there that we just called Paste Up, because that's all he did for the other magazines. But he was always late, mm-hmm. always late. You had to punch a clock when you went in there, like you were a factory worker. <laughs> so he got called in by Bert Levy, who was a, a bigger boss than Pat, and he said, listen, what can we do to, you know, for this problem? You can't make it in on time. It's a constant problem. So he agreed to punch in an hour later and work an hour late. Well, guess what? He was late. <laughs> <laughs> so Bert said, if you're late one more time, you're gone. i got to fire you. Next day, he shows up in line on time in his pajamas. <laughs> But he was on time. He was on time. All right, that was <laughs> yeah. the problem. Yeah, so pace up was gone, but everybody had a laugh. So, Frank, I'm guessing that the way Charlton worked, you didn't wind up owning the rights to Judo Master, even though you dreamed him up, right? Well, there was a, a, a rule that was called work made for hire. And when you got paid, on the back of your paycheck, there was a little sentence that said, I hereby give up all rights to the character I worked on. So when I endorsed a check to cash it, I was also signing a contract. Hmm. And they eventually took my character and other action hero characters and sold them to DC when things were being dismantled at Charlton. And that's when Dick Giordano and I left to go to DC and work on other characters. But it was the same deal there. It was all work made for hire. And my sense of the one of the differences between Charlton and D.C., and obviously there were many differences, but at Charlton, the way I understand it, everything was under one roof, right? It wasn't Absolutely. just a, yeah. So explain that. Explain what, 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 what's meant by that. Well, it was one building, and other publishers had to kind of, because they were working on New York, some one outfit would, separate from the company would do the engraving and then the shipping and all, and it got more expensive. But Charlton, I could walk from my area and I could get down to the engraving, the binding, the composing room, the the presses. And if I took a right-hand turn, I could go into uh, capital distributing. So I saw it for, from creation right till the stuff was being loaded on trucks to go to the retailers. So in a way, you did get to know things that if, if you had only worked for Marvel or for DC, you, you wouldn't really know the whole business the way you, you were right. Yeah. What, I, I know editors that didn't know what happened to, to the work when they got through with it because uh, they didn't have to be concerned with it. So it was a big advantage. So later on, when we went to work for DC and Marvel, I would just deliver the stuff to the engravers in the morning, and then he would come back, the driver would come back at 5 o'clock, and I'd be there to pick up the, the stuff that had to go back 
I had to take back. All right, those are some reminiscences about Charlton Comics. We have some more from Frank McLaughlin coming later, but we've got some uh, other guys here who also remember that era, Mort Todd and Paul Kupperberg. So, uh, Paul, maybe you can start off. What kind of work did you do for Charlton? Or either that or just react any way you want to to some of the stories that Frank was telling. Well, uh, I love the stories. Uh, I love Frank. He's, he's a great guy and, and uh, an artist I've been fortunate enough to work with over the years at, uh, at when I was at DC Comics. But um, uh, when I started at Charlton, they were, um, it was 1975, they were doing a wide variety of books. They were everything from superheroes to uh, horror comics to romance and hot rod and surfing and, uh, uh, you know, name it. If there was a genre, humor, um, they, they licensed a lot of things, Popeye and Yogi Bear and, and Flintstones and things like that. Um, what I started doing was, um, was the horror stories. They were short five or eight page, you know, Twilight Zones, uh, uh, twist ending kind of stories. Uh, and I sold my first half dozen or so to, to Charlton before I moved on to writing for DC Comics uh, a few months later. Um, but yeah, I always call, I, I love Charlton Comics ever since I was a kid. Uh, their, their superhero line, their action hero line in the mid-60s that Frank was talking about were, were some of my favorite comic books of all times. They were just... Um, you know, different and innovative, and uh, the the creators working on them were not as well known as they would later go on to become. But they were doing some incredible work for, as Frank said, very poor rates. Uh, when when I began at Charlton in 1975, I was getting five dollars a page for a script. Ah, you um, know, you know. And uh, when I went on to DC, um, that uh, that tripled. Um, you know, and then moved on from there. I'm sure if Charlton were still around, they'd be up to seven or eight dollars a page <laughs> by now. But um, they were just—I always called them the little comics company that could. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, they were just—they tried so hard, and they—and and they really, you know, managed somehow to pull off some really incredible work. Uh, in around the time I was there in mid '70s, uh, there were artists like uh, Jim Aparo and Joe Staten and John Byrne, all of whom went on to you know, very highly, you know, publicized careers uh, from comics, in in comics. So, um, you know, they were were a great place to start. Uh, Unfortunately, most people couldn't afford to stay. You know, more Todd, um, I remember Charlton Comics a little bit, and and even despite the kind of things that Paul's talking about, and, and we should we could even mention Steve Ditko, who's about as legendary yeah, a, a comic artist as there can be, worked at Charlton and even went to Marvel and came back to Charlton uh, after you know creating really the the initial visual signature for Spider-Man and Doctor Strange and stuff like that. But Mort, I still remember those comics, and I didn't have any aesthetic sense. I was a stupid kid, but <laughs> but I sort of remember them as not looking quite right. I mean, exactly, I, yeah. And yeah, so, I was a bit of a comic snob as well as a kid, and uh, me reading Marvel and DC, and my little brother would pick up the Charltons, and that's just it. They had a cheaper paper quality. As Frank was saying, the printing presses were a little askew. The color would be off. But then, yeah, in particular, seeing Ditko's work there, and I, that's what hooked me at first, and then got into all the other artists, and there seemed to be a lot more creative freedom at Charlton, and uh as Paul was saying, they, they would have artists uh, on the rise and on the decline. So <laughs> you would have Ditko before he did Spider-Man and Doctor Strange, and you would have, like, Joe Schuster after Superman, you know, so you'd get him coming and going. And with Ditko, uh, 
he would he would put the same amount of work in no matter what the page rate, whether it was Marvel, DC, or Charlton. And likewise, I think he enjoyed the freedom at Charlton more than you know the nitpicking editors at the other companies. Well, I think I think one of the things that you have to keep in mind about Charlton is that they publish comic books purely and solely to keep their presses occupied. Yeah. They it was cheaper for them to run their presses 24 hours a day than it was to stop and start them to do runs of their uh regular mainstream magazines. They did a lot of uh song lyric magazines and and uh hot rod magazines and things like that. So it was actually a uh, a way to keep the presses rolling and um you know again it was a cost it was a cost saving measure and if the comics made a few dollars which they did that was just a bonus <laughs> you know Helder, we're talking about Steve uh, Ditko uh and as a fan and Steve Ditko is like the JD Salinger of comics right i mean does he, he sort of like not he talk, really is he, he does he doesn't talk to anyone anymore he's refusing to do any well, interviews that, that's overblown as really? well uh, you know i've had the advantage of uh, the extreme honor of working with him for many years and uh, he is very sociable. It's just that he doesn't have time for, you know, losers, you know. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> he's, not, he's not interested you know, he in revisiting. Hey, that, wait a second. That's us yeah, you're right. talking no, about. No, it's basically he, he likes to work. He likes his industry. Right. And, you know, if some fan comes knocking on the door to bother him, there's just no, you know, it's just not worth it because they usually end up writing something been turning on him or something, you know. But <laughs> yeah, the, the, no, he, he's a super guy, and he's he's a real fan of all media, film, and books. And when I was at Cracked and at Marvel, he'd come and visit and just hang out for hours, and we'd just talk about everything. So, yeah, the know. interesting quote I read about was that he uh, basically said he just wanted to work on it; he didn't want to talk about it or have have anything yeah, misprinted. Like to let his work speak for for himself. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. All right. I work with him as well, and and um, he's really just not it, that terribly interested in revisiting the past. Mm -hmm. He'd rather look ahead. Uh, but he's a very nice man, very sociable, and uh, you know, I was honored. To actually, one of my first stories at Charlton was, was drawn by him, and I'll never forget the day I I, I was on my way to, to to school. I was going to college at the time in in Brooklyn, and I got off the bus and I went into the candy store at the corner and picked up. Uh, you know, I, I had to flip through the Charlton's every month because I never knew what issue my story was going to be in. And I picked it up and I flipped through, and there it was. You know, my name in the same credit box with Steve Ditko. <laughs> I, I I don't think I made it to school that day. Yeah, it's like being, <laughs> being one of the Everly Brothers and hearing your song on the radio for the first time or something. Right, right. sure. All right, we got to take a quick break here. I know you guys can talk all day. We got to just take a quick break. We'll be back with all of our guests after this. Comic book hero father-in-law The crime he ended wasn't paying him well And the damsel calling his name Well, she just sat there cause he never came He's a good guy gone bad All right, we're talking about comic books. So we've been revisiting some of the stories from Charlton Comics in Derby, Connecticut. I've got to quickly say, first of all, we wouldn't be having this conversation if it weren't for Alan Yu, who's a... Uh, croc fellow here. Uh, I don't have time to explain what a croc fellow is. It sounds a little bit like a comic book hero, but it isn't. Uh, but anyway, Alan was the one who kind of tumbled to this whole idea of Charlton and stuff like that. So I did some great reporting on it. It's up at WNPR.org. You can or you can read uh, some of what Alan's been writing about and see some great covers and, and stuff like that too. Before we go to, back to Morton Paul for a second, I just want to uh, visit with the people in the studio and kind of uh, get their reactions to what they're hearing about. Because Helder, I feel like I'm hearing about at a certain point as a kid. I did start to realize there were people. There were specific people. Right. And, and, and Marvel, I th thought, did a better job of kind of 
making the people like I see you, you couldn't not know who Stan Lee was and after a while you couldn't not know who oh, Jack yeah. Kirby was and they kind of blew the, the names up a little bit for you but I mean just to hear these guys talking it's like this is the conversation I wanted to hear when I was a kid I agree I mean it was when I was a kid just Stan Lee was omnipresent with all the cartoons that were out and always hearing his voice um, <clears throat> but I mean I, I grew up learning about Frank Miller because uh, I grew up in that period so the first books that really started recognizing artists names were, were Miller's uh, Dark Knight Returns, Alan Moore with Watchmen, um, just to tie that in with Charlton, um, but also John Byrne on X-Men, and knowing and Dick Giordano, I got to meet him at the bookie out in East Hartford when he was here uh, promoting um, Crisis and the post-crisis on Infinite Earths and DC Comics, and just getting to see like where these artists, getting to identify art style in a book was just always amazing to me, and being able to like pick up on, well, this is Kirby, this is clearly inspired by Kirby, and starting to learn, and then writing finally got to me afterwards, where I was picking up like the difference between a, a, an Alan Moore written or a Chris Claremont written book, and and the styles that would go into seeing how a, a comic writer and an artist can flow on a page together. Um, I mean, when I eventually got to like Will, uh, discovering you know for myself Will Eisner and picking up the spirit and and his and his beautiful graphic novels like Invisible People, uh, Invisible Cities. I mean, just seeing an artist and a writer meld together like that is, is was great and D- despite everything that Helder just said he has a really attractive girlfriend <laughs> uh, so <laughs> some of that that prejudice is is incorrect and Angie I'm wondering about you I mean did you did you want to be a comic book artist and and did you know about comic book artists for a long time before you became one yourself um not for a very long time I think it started like I, I my undergraduate degree is in illustration, so I knew I wanted to be an artist, and I, you know started as a, a watercolorist and such. And around that same time, I was discovering some of those those fully painted comic books in college. I didn't necessarily think I wanted to get into comics until I sort of had the seeds of of the story that that grew into Blood Dreams. And this is this is actually embarrassingly like almost 18 years ago that the earliest seeds of this started. So, you know, it's not like I, I read ElfQuest and thought, oh, I've got to do this, you know, when I was a teenager. I loved it and I still and I drew a lot of things like that. But I don't think I had a story in mind, you know, that I said, oh, I want to tell this story as a comic until much later, until I was in my mid-20s. Until, we should we should say that uh, the issue that I've got here by uh, Angie is blurred by Warren Ellis. It says, a beautifully monstrous punk vampire story, an urban fantasy 1977 rendered in a kaleidoscope of blood and toxins. What could be better? Uh, <laughs> sounds well, great. For those that don't know who Warren Ellis is, he's, you know, been one of the more prolific writers of the, the last 20 years and uh, done a great amount of work at the big two, Marvel and DC, but has, has since on, gone on to like work for smaller presses to to create some great comics. You know, we get some people yeah, calling in. Also, worked Red in the... was based on his comic book. Say that again. The movie Red was based on his comic book. Oh, okay. Right. Yes. Uh, yes. So, Paul, you know, I mean, we're talking a lot about superheroes and 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 that kind of thing, and and also punk vampire stories uh, drenched in blood and toxins. But um, as you and Mart uh, Mort have pointed out, at Charlton, all, all kinds of things were comic books, and all kinds of things still are comic books. And I just want to just quickly pause and say that growing up, I read also read Archie comic books. Um, it was perhaps predictive of what my adolescence and early adulthood was going to be like, that the only character that I could really identify with was Jughead. Uh, but um, 
What's that? <laughs> I said you and me both. Yeah, and but you know, Archie sort of kept going, and Archie is still you know, mirroring teen life, and Archie is still. Uh, I mean, Archie has sort of made news over the last year or two, right? With kind of exploring uh, the LGBT, LGBT side of things. Absolutely, uh, Archie is still going strong, uh, and and I'm proud to be working for them at the moment. They're 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 doing some of the most innovative stuff in the business. Um, I write a magazine called Life with Archie. Which is a uh, uh, is uh, set in the future, six or seven years when they're grown up post college, and each issue follows two storylines. One shows what happens if Archie and Betty got married. The other shows what happens if Archie and Veronica got married. So we're and in that we've been exploring everything from life and death. I, I killed off Miss Grundy. Oh my God! Um, no, she was asking for it, and um, we've done. We did a, a gay marriage story with uh, the Kef, uh, the Kevin Keller character, who was created by Dan Parent, uh, the first gay character in the uh, in the Archie universe. Uh, about whom I also wrote a young adult novel that was published last year. Um, and uh, we're dealing with gun violence. We're dealing with um, uh, breast cancer. The the character Cheryl Blossom returns to Riverdale after having been out in Hollywood trying to become a movie star, uh, and we find out that she's had a mastectomy and is, is undergoing treatment for cancer. Uh, so it's, it's a pull-no-punches kind of storyline. And then they're also doing the Afterlife Archie. with Archie story, yeah. which is a, a new comic. Uh, I think the fourth issue is out, uh, which is um, uh, kind of Archie meets Walking Dead, and, you know, Jughead is a zombie. <laughs> well, he always was, but um, <laughs> all right. Well, this is obviously a, a bit a different Archie than I grew up with because, like, the well, big trauma would be the teen Archie is still going strong. Yeah. you can still pick up the the, Ar- the regular Archie titles and and still find you know Betty and Veronica and Archie and Reggie and Jughead all going through the same paces. Uh, but they're also willing they're also willing to take chances with the characters and and try different things. Um, was it Reggie who killed Miss Grundy? No, Miss oh. Grundy died of natural causes. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> no, uh, that's one one story, anyway. Yeah. Uh, yes. Well, that's I'm sticking to it. All right. Uh, well, anyway, I think in Blood Dreams she dies in a completely different way. So our number eight six zero two seven five seven two six six eight six zero two seven five seven two six six. We've also got a lot of people calling in, but more Todd. Maybe uh, quickly while we're, we're still sort of in the Charlton era too, you could say something about the Charlton era, right? This this is one of the things that Alan you got interested in this notion that that maybe there ought to be uh, a modern tribute to to what Charlton comics were. Yeah, well, what happened was uh, a, a friend called Fester Faceplant started a fan book pa- uh, Facebook page, a fan page for Charlton, and, you know, got a whole community of us like me and Paul and R- Roger McKenzie, a writer, and just tons of people. And Fester had the idea to do a series of trading cards and a tribute comic, and it just snowballed into this, you know, extravaganza that we're putting out that has a, a lot, it has a few Charlton veteran artists like uh, John Byrne, who went on to X-Men, Superman, and Joe Staten, and a lot of professionals like Paul and Roger, and also the next generation of, you know, Charlton fans that are going to be superstars in the future. So we're uh, doing a lot of stories in the flavor of the original Charlton with a wide variety of, of genres and characters and 
the reaction to it has been excellent. It's so really are, exciting. Are, are there you, copies or there issues? Idea to of the reaction. I was at a comic book convention in Kansas City uh, last weekend, and I walked up to say hello to a friend of mine, uh, an artist named Rick Burchett, who is very well known in the business. He worked on Batman for 15 years. Uh, lots of other stuff, and um, the first thing he said to me was, so, who do I have to kill to contribute to the Charlton Arrow? <laughs> this is and, Grundy, uh, it turns out. Is the we answer. are now, uh, <laughs> we're, we're doing, he wanted to do a Western, so we're taking one of the uh, Charlton Western characters, the Cheyenne Kid, and I'm writing a story for him, and he's going to be drawing it. Oh, that is awesome. So um, so there are issues out now that people can yeah, get? Yeah, the book yeah. is out this month in March, and uh, you can see it, uh, see previews for it, and order it at morttodd.com, M-O-R-T-T-O-D-D.com. You right. go there, and you'll see the cover for the Charlton Arrow, and just click on it, and it'll take you to our Charlton page, and it also has a link for our Facebook page that you can join in on the fun. Can you describe the title? Why is it called the Charlton Arrow? Arrow, yeah, because... Uh, they used to have a logo that was a target, and it, uh, they, they would put the price and the arrowhead on the cover. This was like in the mid-'70s. So and how many issues our... do you plan on doing? Uh, well, we're looking at doing it bi-monthly, so it's we go going broke. to be ongoing. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so um, I'm going to And just... we're looking for contributors. So like I said, go to the Facebook page or, or to my site, and the email is charlton at morttodd.com if you want to find out more information. <laughs> Wolfie and I will be contributing Red Rabbit uh, as a superhero, <laughs> and we're very excited about him. I was just going to ask that one more question. That sounded like Stan Lee when I heard that. That was a good Stan Lee <laughs> yeah. impression. Uh, just one more question, which is, uh, what about characters that, um, I mean, got ri- got sold off to DC? Are you guys right, doing anything with no, that? We're not. We're, yeah. we're not using. We're just using the public domain characters because uh, Charlton was a little dodgy about copywriting their stuff, and uh, right. you know, a lot of it is in the public domain. And what other companies have done is retrademark the characters, but change them completely. Because if you look at the old Charlton action heroes, they look nothing like they originally did at DC now, and they only have the same name, and that's about it. So that they could trademark them themselves. So. Yeah, I think only the question and Blue Beetle really kept that look more mm-hmm. that Dicko created for a while. They did for a while, but yeah, now the Blue Beetle has like all these bionic weapon powers or yeah, something, and the, and the question is female. Yeah, and the so. Blue Beetle's, uh, <laughs> they killed off Dicko's original creation, exactly. which is Ted Corp, yeah. which is just one of the most atrocious murder scenes in, in a comic. Hey, I want to grab one quick call here from uh, Nick Cuddy. He's uh, calling in from Florida. Uh, we have we have three oh, hours worth cool. of material to get through in, in the course of one hour. Uh, Nick, are you there? I am here. Yes, I am. So what have we left out so far from the Charlton story? Uh, actually, you've covered it pretty well. Uh, I've been listening in, and Frank and, and Paul and everybody has covered it pretty well. That's what attracted me to Charlton was the fact that it wasn't a superhero company that it had a variety of... When I was a kid, I used to read The Lone Ranger and Tom Corbett Space Cadet, and none of the other companies did that sort of thing except Charlton. And uh, so that was why I... Uh, and then what happened was, all of a sudden we went back into the superhero line and I came up with E-Man uh, for them. Uh, tell me about E-Man. Okay, E-Man is an energy being from outer space. When a star nova it gave off this packet of intelligent energy, which was E-Man. And he can take any form of energy or matter. Remember Einstein's famous formula, E equals MC squared, plastered on his chest. And so he can change into a a lamppost or a a chair or be a human being. And his girlfriend is Nova Kane, 
who is a stripper, or at least she's a college student working her way through college by being a stripper. Uh, this this sounds fabulous. Um, <laughs> it, it just sounds right up my alley. And uh, also, uh, Nick and, and the artist Joe Staten are working on a new E-Man series, which will be in the Charlton Arrow in the future. All right. right. Well, uh, E-Man is one of the few superheroes. Can I can say superhero, can I? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he's one of the few superheroes that were not bought up by uh, DC. Uh, Joe Staten actually owns the rights to him. Okay, we're going to grab a quick break here. We've got a lot of ground to cover here, and we're running really out of time. Um, I want to get back to some of the conversation here in the studio, too, about the present and future of comics. Obviously, the Charlton Arrow is part of that, but so is the digital universe and lots of other stuff. We'll be back after this. Two guys lived together for 40 years in a big house over a cave full of costumes and ropes and utility belts. Nobody batted an eye. It was a different time. Today's show was produced by Betsy Kaplan and me. Our interns are Greg Andrew Lischke and Anna Novak. The part of Bill Curry was played by Adam West. Sir Ray Hardman appeared in the intro, and Katie Talarski is our executive producer. For show pages, articles, and photos of the Faith Middleton Show staff as Cronut Man, Toasted Pomegranate, Panna Cotta Girl, and the Blue Panini, visit our website, WNPR.org. Warning, tomorrow's show could affect your mental health if you're upset by panels called The Nose or discussions of trigger warnings like this one. And now, back to Colin. Yeah, one of the things the nose will be talking about tomorrow will be uh, this whole notion of trigger warnings that people need to be told in advance about what's coming because it may occasion uh, some uh, horrible descent into distress, uh, which has become a very common thing these days. I don't think they happen on Blood Dreams comic books. I don't see any trigger warning here, but uh, I could be wrong. Uh, so we're going to spend. There is a thing that says suggested for mature readers. Right, exactly. <laughs> I, I want to quickly say we've got another six minutes with Frank McLaughlin, which we are not going to be able to put on the air today. Can we put them up as a, that up as a web? extra. That's what we'll do. So at WNPR.org when all this is over, uh, we'll, uh, we'll not only have our, obviously the audio from today up and some pictures and stuff like that, but we'll, we'll put our other six minutes with Frank, who is amazing. He's a trip. Uh, he really is. Uh, this whole Charlton story is like something uh, somebody should write a comic novel about it, but um, maybe I will. And I know Paul has actually has written uh, uh, one novel that's sort of, I think, sort of a murder mystery set in the world of comic books. So It's a, it's a great one, yeah. It's an attractive thing. That's more Todd who's still with us. I want to talk a little bit of sort of what's going on right this second, and I'm going to start uh, here in the studio. And so, um, Angie, you're obviously contributing to the world of comic books right now. Um, I don't know how well even you know what comic books were like in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, but what's going on right now? Obviously, one of the things that's going on right now is things can be done digitally, right? Things can exist on the Internet. Absolutely. Uh, That is one of the big contributions to how things are evolving. Um, I have a few... uh, both issues one and two of Blood Dreams are available on a, a platform called Comixology. And that is a, a place, you know, they started primarily, you know, maybe with some larger publishers. But more recently, over the past year or so, they have opened it up where independent comic producers can submit their comic digitally as a PDF. And they, you know, after a little bit of a review process, they, they will. Uh, make it available as an e-comic. And this is something you can read on a tablet or uh, in a browser or all sorts of different ways. So um, 
that's one of the nice things that takes out the the cost of printing. That's one of the hardest things about comics is the, is the cost of printing and then also distribution. Uh, I did clearly uh, get issue one printed, and I did that through a successful Kickstarter campaign. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's only in a few comic book stores that I go up to with a handful and say, hey, would you like to, to put this on your shelves? Could you? And, you know, with various different kinds of arrangements. Um, unless you're able to get in with Diamond Distributors, it's very, very hard to get your comic all over the country, yeah, you know, and, and they're pretty picky. Yeah, yeah, they're picky and they're also, yeah, yeah, if you don't have the deep pockets, they're not... I mean, there's one, one, the one comic book I actually really pick up regularly, Atomic Robo, just got into some trouble with them where they're, they missed a deadline and their, their book series got pushed back by months where like five issues were like released over almost a year. You know, more time, yeah. my, my sense is this stuff, you know, obviously it can exist digitally and it's exciting what can be done digitally. On the other hand, I feel like people want the thing too. People, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. They want the hard copy and... I'll tell you one thing, because of uh, Charlton's old production values, a lot of people were hoping we could print on really crummy newsprint. <laughs> <laughs> and unfortunately, the printers don't carry that stuff for comics anymore. I kept uh, talking to printers, and I was like, can we get crummier papers in this? You know, because <laughs> we kind of want it to be that way. And in, in fact, one of the stories I'm doing for the second issue, I misregistered the color. I put the color in the wrong place on purpose to try to emulate that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it didn't, it didn't Charlton have some uh, printing press that was actually for, like, cereal boxes or something? That's the story. I don't know if it's apocryphal or the true story or what. But, yeah, that's what I heard. But regardless, it, it certainly wasn't for comic books. But, <laughs> and, and Helder, as a fan, you, I'm, you're you a very digital guy in a lot of ways, right. but I assume you do want the thing. You want the physical oh, yeah. artifact in your hand, right? Yeah, I, I, <clears throat> I tried reading one comic recently on, on Comixology, and it just was, it's not the same. I like to be able to flip a page. I like to go back. I like to just stare at the page and feel the print in my hand. I mean, I have two books in, here in, in the studio. One's by my roommate, Moon Freight 3. Uh, he's always been doing web comics, and then much like Angie has done, like, published them and got them printed self-published but and he's going through a kickstarter now because it's tough to like do that for a small indie and then another by sarah o'donnell who does her own uh, she was doing a series called rum birds i know she's doing more online stuff right now and it's great to see stuff online but it's great to also like have it put it in my library i'm a tactile person personally and it came from buying comics i remember taking a, a each issue and individually wrapping them and putting them in their bag and polybagging them, putting them in, on the shelf or in a box. It's just well, nice to I have it. I wonder about the future at comic conventions. Are people going to trade uh, digital comics and, you know, what, how, what, you give you a file? and A thumb drive, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And it, it's, I agree as a, as a, you know, the things that I still read, and this applies to, to book books as well, I enjoy particularly things yeah. that I really like. I, I want to have a physical copy. Um, but as a creator, you know, there's aside from you know the computer equipment I knew, need to to make it, which right. I already have because I'm a graphic designer and such. Uh, there's no startup. I submit to Comixology. If it sells, they take a percentage, and that's it. I don't have to worry about storing hundreds of copies. And you know, and, and once you have it, you know, even if you have a success, successful Kickstarter and you've printed you know a thousand copies, 
what are you going to do? I, I've, I've gone around, but really you should go to conventions and get a table, and that gets really expensive. Oh, yeah. It's all, all too expensive. And, you know, uh, more Todd, uh, the cartoonist, not a comic book guy, but the New Yorker cartoonist William Hamilton one time told me that some of the uh, tension, the comic tension of a cartoon in the New Yorker was that uh, so much effort had been put into drawing such a flimsy idea. Uh, and, and that's, you know, in comic books, sometimes that was the case, too, that something about the fact that there was, that an inker and engraver and a letterer and you know had had worked together to create this thing was kind of amazing particularly considering yeah. how fantastic uh, and, and i mean there you know even if it was sort of a crazy idea somebody had actually done all this right well talking about the earlier charlton you know having all their facilities in one building that's sort of what we're doing now with computers you know we we in fact have the production aspect of it the and the distribution aspect of it in in our little computer as opposed to the old days when you had all the different companies uh years ago when i printed comics on my own for color we had to pay about a thousand dollars a page for engraving for the Mm -hmm. color separation and now it's free you just do it in photoshop and you've got an instant separation so it's you know it's got a good side and it's good bad side but i'd say mostly good but i too want to see you know hard copies of these books and the smell of old comics. You can't recreate that digitally. I mean, even just for a comic book page, like seeing an artist do stuff digitally to, to maximize time and to also, or to, you know, to just be able to erase better on Photoshop, it's still not the same as like seeing an actual penciled and inked page for sale, um, which you can't get from some artists that do everything right, digitally. For that reason, because I, t- I also write and draw, I, I always draw, you know, traditionally on paper and then scan it and do the finishes and clean up. So, you know, the whiteout industry must be going out of business, too, with computers. But, <laughs> yeah. Well, but yeah, Mike I like Nesbitt's, to ask yeah. Yeah, Mike Nesbitt's mom. Yeah, yeah. And yeah, I will right. say, one of the things that I, I have also seen, some of the, the people doing things digitally are trying to do things to make it a little bit more interactive and engaging, where it's not just, you know, a comic mm-hmm. that's been converted to an electronic thing like a, a static PDF, but... Um, Things you know where the panels are, you know, you click on something and then something happens in it. So it's like a, a mini animation. It's not a full fledged animation, but you have this sort, you know, these guided views. So you're traveling through the page in a different way. So at least it's it's you know it it gives you something that you can't get in print, but still is still it, it's it's a hybrid in there. We got to stop. Uh, Bitsy Kaplan just said if we don't stop, uh, she'll get angry. And she said, you wouldn't want to see me angry. Uh, so we'll stop right now. Thanks to everybody who helped out. Uh, what a great show. What a lot of fun to talk to Mort Todd and uh, Paul Kupperberg and Frank McLaughlin and our in-studio guests, Angie Shearstone and Helder Mira. We'll be back tomorrow with The Nose. Of a comic book Boss, I've got some more ideas. The Incredible Sulk. He's always so sad. No. Okay, the Fantastic Boar. Uh-uh. Uh, okay, the Hemmer. He hems pants with lightning speed. Your ideas stink. Uh, fine. I was going to tell you about the human porch. He's, you know, just a, he's a porch, so. Wait, 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 wait. Tell me more. <laughs>